this evening, the Bible says, And it came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up uh, into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, Go up. And David said, Whither shall I go up? And he said, Unto Hebron. So David went up thither, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelite, and Abigail, Nabal's wife, the Carmelite. And his men um, that were with him did David bring up every man with his household, and they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, that the men of Jabesh-Gilead were they that buried Saul. We're going to look at this title tonight, David's Integrity Makes Him King. David's Integrity Makes Him King. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at the first chapter of Second Samuel, the beginning of the second chapter of this book, and we look at David and we see a heart, his heart for you and that of integrity, may we be challenged to live our life honestly and above board. Lord, may integrity be a characteristic that greatly defines each of us. And God, uh, whether or not that is true in our reputation, may it be true in our character when no one's watching. And God, you know, you know deep down whether or not we're integritous. Help us to strive to be men and women who live our lives honestly. Lord, bless the message this evening. Uh, Lord, help us to walk away with some truths that will give us something to think on. And Lord, uh, will challenge us to change. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. David in this uh, book here is going to, uh, he's going to be elevated from just a shepherd boy. And uh, with that, not just a shepherd boy, but a shepherd boy on the run, uh, to now being the king of Judah, eventually king of Israel. And we see he's becoming a leader, a leader. He's officially embracing the leader. But let me just uh, say up front that long before David was given the title of leader, David learned how to lead. David learned how to first lead himself. He learned how to lead the men that God had brought to him. Uh, he learned how to lead his family, his home. And now that he has proven himself to be a good leader, he's, be, be, he's being given the title of leader of the nation. Which brings me to this question, what makes a great leader? What makes a great leader? We look around and there are leaders all over the place. There are many leaders sitting in this room right now. You may lead at work. You may lead a wife at home. You, you may lead children at home. Uh, you, may, uh, you may lead in some civil duty. Uh, what makes a great leader? Leader, uh, There are leaders here within our church. You have a position here at church. You've been given some leadership within our church. What makes a great leader? Well, if you ask the average person what makes a great leader, they might say something like charisma. Charisma. Someone who has got a large personality and they're excited and, and they bring the energy. Someone might say, well, a great leader, uh, uh, what makes a great leader? Well, maybe they would say it is decisiveness. Right? Able to make a decision. And you do, you do need to be able to make good decisions to be a good leader. Right? You need to be able to make a decision. Uh, you get a bunch of people in a room who don't want to lead and they just bicker and argue about what the final decision should be and they want to weigh the pros and the cons. Well, if you do it this way, then this. But if you do it this way, and you go back and forth and, and, and you just need someone to step up and just make a decision. Uh, I've gone on vacations with multiple family units, right? My sister and brother-in-law are here. Sometime back we went to 
uh, we had vacation together with them and, and several other of my uh, brothers and sisters and their families uh, in PA. And we're sitting around trying to figure out where to go. And, and my dad just steps up and says, we're doing this. And aren't you glad to have someone who can step up and make a decision? Um, what makes a great leader? Someone might say, well, it's confidence. It's confidence. Someone who's confident, uh, they, they know where they're going. And even when they get it wrong, uh, that, that doesn't shake their confidence. They, they get up and they dust themselves up and they reformulate and they, they, they march forward. They, they move forward. And we need a leader who is confident. Someone else might say, well, a great leader is someone who has great vision and they are able to perceive. And while everyone else is playing checkers, they're playing chess and they've got a, a long game strategy and, and they, they know uh, where they're taking the organization or where they're taking the family or a vision for the children or they have uh, a vision for their own life. And uh, they're a great leader because they uh, have clarity of mind and, and clarity of, uh, of, of future casting. They are able to cast a vision and then go forth and execute that vision. What makes a great leader. Is it charisma? Is it decisiveness? Is it confidence? Is it vision? I would say all of these play a secondary role to leadership. They are important, but they are secondarily important to a, a much greater attribute, a much greater character trait. Now, the title of the sermon this evening has given away the answer to my question, what makes a great leader? The answer, of course, is integrity. Integrity. If you have charisma but you lack integrity, you're going to fall flat on your face. If you have decisiveness but you are uh, shoddy in the way you go about doing your business and you're dishonest in the way you do your business, you're going to land on your face. You can have all the confidence in the world, uh, but if you lie and cheat and swindle and steal to get your way there, uh, my friend, people are going to see right through the sham that you are and no one is going to follow you. You can have vision and, and see clearly what other people ought to do. and uh, you, can, you can have anticipation uh, and Anticipatory skills, but if you are not a man or woman of great character, then my friend, no one in the end is going to follow you. You see, if you are average at charisma, decisiveness, confidence, vision, and any other uh, attribute of a leader that you want to have, if you're average at those things and you are a man or woman of great integrity, people will get in behind you and follow you. But if you are great at these things and you have no integrity, you have no character, it is just a matter of time until people leave you to follow someone who does? Um, uh, turn over in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 78. We're going to look at the end of Psalm 78 in just a moment. While you're turning over there, uh, uh, Solomon observed in Proverbs 29 too, he said, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. He said, When the righteous are in authority, everyone's happy. When the wicked are in authority, everyone mourns. Everyone mourns. Uh, as you read through the book of the Kings and the Chronicles, the Kings and the Chronicles, and by the way, uh, the book of First Chronicles and the book of Second Samuel, there's a lot of uh, redundancy in the stories, and so as we go through Second Samuel, we'll be flipping over to First Chronicles to get that perspective on the same story from time to time. But throughout the books of the Kings and the Chronicles, you find statements like this. 2 Kings 18.3. Uh, this statement, it's similar statement to this, are found all throughout 2 Kings. Uh, 1 2 Kings, 1 2 Chronicles. Here it reads, And he, speaking of the king of that time, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. How many of you have read through the Bible and seen that phrase many, many, 
many times in the Scripture. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that David, his father, did. By the way, when you read about, uh, when you read a verse that says, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that fill in the blank his father did. Here's how that works. Watch, this is a really interesting observation. Uh, uh, they take the most wicked king, and then when someone comes along and is more wicked than the most wicked example previously given, it switches, all right? At one point when you read through, uh, you realize uh, that it is Rehoboam. They did uh, evil like under Rehoboam, and then it switches to Ahab. Because Ahab and his wickedness outdid Rehoboam, and so Ahab becomes the new standard. David is never replaces the standard. David is always the standard of when they did right, they did right like David did. Uh, they followed the Lord like, like David did. Uh, when Israel had a righteous king, a man of integrity running things, the people followed the example and they did what was right. When you put a righteous man at the top, I'm not saying everyone did right all the time, but corporately speaking as a country, they did right. Uh, they took on the character of their king and they did that which was right. When the wicked were in rule, it was chaos and uh, things were a total disaster and a mess. Now, um, God made David king because David was a man of integrity. All throughout the Kings and Chronicles, a man chooses to do right in the sight of the Lord. He's compared back to David. Look at uh, um, uh, Psalm, uh, uh, Psalm 78. We're going to look at verse 70 in just a moment. I want us to notice that we saw in 1 Samuel 16, we saw the rise of David. 1 Samuel 16, uh, uh, let's see, uh, Samuel goes and he anoints David to be the next king. And uh, chapter 17, he goes and slays the giant. Chapter 18, he behaves himself wisely. Chapter 19, the wheels come off. Then we see uh, the refinement of David. The refinement of David. So 16, 17, and 18 are the rise of David. Uh, 1 Samuel 19, to the end of the book of 1 Samuel, we see the refinement of David. God allowed Saul, an embittered man, to torture David for ten years. Ten years he chased him around the wilderness. Ten years he hunted him like an animal. Ten years he sought to kill him. Why did God not take Saul on home to heaven earlier? Why did God allow Saul to stay in place uh, when he was the Spirit of the Lord had left him and, and, and it was just a matter of time? Why did God leave Saul in place and not install David after he had behaved himself wisely in chapter 18? The answer is David was not ready to be king. God was going to allow Saul to torture David in an attempt to refine David and make him into mold him into the man he needed to be to be ready to be king. And I've made this point several times throughout chapters 19 through the end of the end of 1 Samuel is that you may be going through a really hard time in your life right now. You may be going through issues that are relational or medical or spiritual or emotional. Uh, you may be going through uh, some sort of hardship and you've been in some sort of rut and some sort of valley for a long time. And let me just say to you, God has put you in that valley because He's trying to refine you for the very next stage of life. And I, th some, I think sometimes God puts us in these valleys and leaves us there because we're so stubborn and hard-headed, we don't learn our lesson. And God says, well, if you're not going to learn your lesson, I'll just leave you there until you do. And on and on and on the problems go. And I believe some people live their life in a valley of sorts because they're too stubborn to really learn from what God has for them. David was left there for ten years. God was working out his situational ethics behavior. God was refining uh, his uh, desire to follow his own logic and plan for his life. And God was showing him, David, 
when you do it your way, you make a mess. But when you back up and do it my way, and trust me, I can save your life, and I can prove myself real to you, and I can have intimate time with you when you just put down your hands and trust me. Why did God put David on the run for 10 years? Why did God make him a fugitive of the law with a bounty on his head? For 10 years, God was refining David. And then we get to we get to 2 Samuel and we see the reign of David. The reign of David. Um, look with me at Psalm 78. Look at verse number 70. The Bible says he chose David, also his servant, and took him... From the sheepfolds, from following the ewes, great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hand. You see there, God took David from feeding the sheep, helping you lambs give birth, and he placed him over Israel And what was the defining characteristic that made David a leader? The Bible says he was a man of integrity. He led them by the integrity of his heart. He fed them according to the integrity of his heart. The world is full of men and women who do that which is right in their own eyes. They do that which is convenient in the moment. They do that which brings about instantaneous gratification. They will step on others in order to advance their own causes. They seek vengeance against those who have done them wrong. The the world is full of people who hold a position of leadership but lack any real integrity. God needs men and women who will do what is right even when it is inconvenient to do so. God needs men and women who will do right uh, and treat other people the way that is righteous even when it is unmerited or undeserved. David's integrity and patience would be the uniting glue that would pull a fractured and fragile Israel together and grow them into the greatest nation on planet Earth. Uh, Israel's greatness would continue all the way through Solomon's uh, uh, long Tenured reign. We're talking about close to 60, 70, 80 years. Israel would be great because David led by integrity. This evening, I want to ask you this question. Uh, do, uh, do I take my leadership? I want you to ask yourself this question rather. Do I take my leadership role seriously? Do I take my leadership role seriously? Husbands, do you lead your wife uh, with a sense of this is important and I need to take this role serious or are you just kind of sailing through? A lot of husbands are content to let their wife run the home. A lot of husbands are content to let the wife discipline the kids. A lot of husbands are content to let the wife be the more spiritual one in the marriage. A lot of husbands only go to church because wife drags them there and they do it to keep peace in the marriage. Men, are we leading? Are we leading? I'm going to continue to challenge men at White Oak Baptist Church because we have a culture that is seeking to effeminize and emasculate our men. And we need men who will have a gracious, kind spirit about them, but have a backbone to stand up and say, I will lead my wife, I will lead my children, and I will do so with kindness and integrity. Integrity. 
David was a man who treated others with, uh, in a way that was righteous, not by what they deserved on how they had treated him. We talked about not reacting, but responding. David responded instead of reacting. Um, uh, I want all of us to ask this question this evening. Am I a man or woman of integrity? That's the question tonight. Am I a man or woman of integrity? And here's the answer to that question. Only you and God know. No one knows what you do when no one else is looking. Only you and God know that. Your husband doesn't know that. Your wife does not know that. Your parents do not know that. There's no religious leader in your life that knows that. You and God know whether or not you are a man or woman of integrity. You cannot lead to your fullest potential until you get this figured out. We're going to jump into 2 Samuel 1 and 2. We're going to give our attention to four observations about David and his integrity as we consider this title, David's Integrity Makes Him King. Number one, number one, we're going to go back to 2 Samuel 1 verse 1 here. Notice vindication. Vindication, letter A, notice a deceitful messenger. A deceitful messenger. Look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 1, and look at verse number 1. Let's read down through verse number 10. Now, hold on. Before I read, really quick backstory. Back in Second Samuel, or rather First Samuel, the last chapter prior, uh, last chapter of the book, uh, what happens? Saul and his sons are at war, and uh, in, in, a Philistine with a bow and arrow shoots and hits Saul and hits his son Jonathan, and they're wounded nigh unto death. And David looks at his armor bearer and says, I do not want to die by the hands of an of, of a, of a unclean a Gentile or a Philistine. I need you to finish, finish off the job, put me out of my misery, and kill me. His armor bearer does not do that. Instead, his armor bearer kills himself because he doesn't want to have to have that on his record. He doesn't want it going down in history that he's the one that killed the king. And so instead, Saul draws out his sword. Scripture tells us that Saul falls on his own sword and commits suicide. Saul kills himself. Now, that's how Saul died, but that's not how the story is going to be conveyed to David. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Now, it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had abode two days in Ziklag. So they've just gotten back from, from war. Uh, remember remember uh, uh, from a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Amalekites had come in and burned the camp of Ziklag, taken his wife and children captive. David pursued them, caught them, killed them, got his wife and, and children back, along with all the rest of the men, and, and had all this spoil. They've now been home two days from this war. They're just getting settled in, getting their bags unpacked, getting life back to normal. Verse 2, it came even to pass on the third day that behold a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes rent and earth upon his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the earth and did obeisance. So this man's about to put on a big show here. And David said unto him, from whence comest thou? And he said unto him, out of the camp of Israel am I escaped. Can you picture him? He's breathing heavy, right? He's just been on the run to David. And David said unto him, uh, how went the matter? I pray thee, tell me. And he answered, here comes a big lie. 
uh, that the people are fled from the battle, and many of the people also are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. That part's true. It comes a lie. And David said unto the young man uh, that told him, How knowest thou that Saul and Jonathan, his son, be dead? And the young man said, uh, The young man that told him said, As I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, behold, Saul leaned upon his spear, and lo, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him, and he looked behind him and saw me and called unto me. And I answered, Here am I. And he saith unto me, Who art thou? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He saith unto me again, Stand, I pray thee, upon me and slay me, for anguish is upon me, because my life is yet whole in me. So I stood upon him and slew him, because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. And I took the crown uh, that was upon his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them hither unto my Lord. So he claims that he walked up on Saul, who's wounded and close to death, and that uh, Saul says to him, who are you? And he says, I'm an Amalekite. Now, the irony in this. Do you remember back in First Samuel, let's see, chapter 16, chapter 16, where God told Saul to go and wipe out all of the Amalekites, and Saul did not obey. Now, here you have an Amalekite claiming he killed Saul. Um, oh, the irony. Oh, the irony. Saul did not obey, and now you have an Amalekite claiming to have killed him. I'll tell you one big reason why I don't think this guy's telling the truth, because if this man had told Saul... I'm an Amalekite. There is no way Saul would have said, then finish me off. There's no way. No way. Saul would have not wanted that to go down on his legacy, that he had disobeyed Samuel by not slaying all the Amalekites, only to have an Amalekite turn around and slay him. This guy comes, and I believe what happened was, is he's hiding out, he's watching the war take place. He sees Saul die. He swoops in and takes the crown and, and, and the golden bracelet, and he comes running to David, hoping that David will make him a hero, hoping that David will give him a place. But remember, this sermon is about David's integrity. David did not look at the man and say, Oh, thank you for taking out my arch rival, my arch enemy. Let me advance you. No, in fact, David responds in a way that to this man must have seemed peculiar. Seemed peculiar. We see a deceitful messenger letter be noticed, a despondent camp. A despondent camp. Look at verse number 11 of Second Samuel chapter 1. The Bible says, Then David took hold on his clothes and rent them. And likewise, all the, man, all the men that were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until even for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they were fallen by the sword. How would have David responded had he been bitter over Saul? Do you think David would have wept and tore his clothes and fasted if he was bitter at Saul for what, the way he had treated him for the last ten years? You see, David was a man of integrity. He had so forgiven Saul that instead of rejoicing over Saul's death, he mourned over his death. And he led his people to do the same. Let her see, notice, a deserved judgment. A deserved judgment. Look at verse 13. David said unto the young man that told him, Whence art thou? And he answered, I am the son of a stranger in Amalekite. David said unto him, How wast thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? 
David called one of the young men and said, Go near and fall upon him. And he smote him that he died. David said unto him, Thy blood be upon thy head, for thy mouth hath testified against thee, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. David said, I don't know if you killed him or not, but because you said you killed him, you have written out your own death sentence. You do not raise your hand against God's anointed king. You do not do that. Someone would argue, was this vigilante? Was this uh, justified by David to do it? Remember that he was Israel's next uh, heir to the throne. And so he would have held by God, in God's eyes, the position of uh, the Lord's anointed to be king. And this would have been his judicial role to do so. He would have been uh, justified scripturally in having this done. Uh, this Amalekite assumed that David had the character of an average greedy politician. He assumed that David would look at him and say, oh, thank you so much for having taken out the man who's tried to hunt me down and kill me for the last ten years. Uh, here, here's a bounty of an award. Uh, listen, why don't you come and be an advisor for me? I'll send you to be an ambassador on behalf of uh, the kingdom when I'm uh, in charge. And you can be part of the good old boys club. Although our politicians seem to have their good old boys club, don't they? And uh, that's not how David responded because David was a man of character. David did not operate on a greed of power. David operated from a position of character and integrity. David did not reward the man for killing Saul, but rather killed the man. It, and I want to make it practical to each of us here this evening. If someone made it their goal in life to hate you and make your life miserable, and then you found out that someone hurt them as much as they had hurt you, how would you treat that person? How would you treat that person? Would you secretly be glad, or maybe not even so secretly be glad, they had mistreated your enemy? I have shared that I have been hurt in a church ministry prior. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I just want to quickly use this as an example. There was a time in my life that if someone had gone and worked for that guy and had mistreated him the way he mistreated me, I would have been happy to hear about it. And shame on me for having felt that way. We're not to laugh when our enemy stumbles. We're not to rejoice at the destruction of our enemies. David had enough character and enough integrity that instead of rejoicing over the death of the man who made him his enemy, he, he was instead sad. That brings us to point number two. We saw vindication. Number two, notice lamentation. You didn't think I was going to have four points to start with the letter V, did you? That would have been, that would have been a, uh, that would have been quite an accomplishment. Lamentation. So we'll alliterate with the end of the word tonight. Lamentation. Uh, letter A. Notice David's challenge to Israel. David's challenge to Israel. Now I've known the story about the young man coming to um, David since I was a small child, but um, in studying for this message. I did not realize the lengths David went through to mourn over Saul. David actually wrote a poem for the Israelites to learn to commemorate Saul's life. Look at verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son. And he bade them, look here, teach the children of Judah 
the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashir. In the book of Jashir, this is a, a book of Israeli history where some of the big uh, uh, events are recorded. And in the book of Jashir, it is my understanding that Saul was the one that brought archery to Israel and installed that uh, in their military. He taught them archery. He brought in archery and they became good at archery under uh, the under King Saul. And, and so he's saying to them, he's saying, uh, teach this fact. Make sure that the children of Judah know the greatness of Saul and what he did. Look at verse 19. The beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath. That's the capital Philistia. Publish it not in the streets of Ascalon, another prominent city in Philistia. Let the daughters of the Philistines, uh, uh, re- lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Hey, don't tell the Philistines about this. We don't need to give them any more reason to rejoice. David labeled the sweet psalmist of Israel. David wrote a poem commemorating the death of Saul and his sons and ordered that his people from Judah learn the poem. David made sure to highlight the good of King Saul's life. Now, if you read through 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel does not cast Saul in a positive light at all. I mean, from the jump, right from the jump of being king, he's sacrificing when Samuel's supposed to do it, and he's not taking out the Amalekites the way he's commanded, and uh, he's lying about his disobedience to the Lord, and He's chasing David around trying to kill him. He's visiting a witch to bring Samuel back from the dead. 1 Samuel does not paint Saul in a positive light. But David took time to make sure to highlight the good of Saul's life. Um, he, like I mentioned before, he had brought archery to the nation of uh, of Israel as a form of weaponry. He had unified the 12 tribes. You may remember that before Saul became king. The 12 tribes were not unified. They were sort of scattered and, and all doing their own thing. He brought them together and unified the 12 tribes and they truly became a nation under his watch. Uh, he had brought wealth to the nation. Uh, Saul had brought great wealth to the nation. Look down at verse 24. Look down at verse 24. It says, um, uh, Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you in scarlet uh, with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. He's saying you are wealthy because of Saul. Uh, you daughters of, of, of Israel, you have great wealth and uh, you're able to uh, robe yourself in these fine linens and, and have ornaments of gold because Saul was such a great king. David did not rejoice over the death of his enemy. He wept. He lamented. He wrote a psalm of lamentation. He instructed his people to corporately lament. Here's the point I'm trying to draw out this evening in this point, is that keep a tender heart even toward your enemies. Don't just see the negative in your enemies. Because deep down inside of the heart of even the worst person, uh, there can be something good found that we can highlight. Letter B, we see David's curse on the mountains. David's curse on the mountains. Look at 2 Samuel Chapter 1 and verse 21, it says, Ye mountains of Gilboa, lest there be no dew, neither uh, let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul as though he had not been anointed with oil. David 
then went on to curse the land where Saul and his sons had died. He, he prayed that God would kill the wheat fields. And by the way, these wheat fields, history tells us, were used for the grain offerings at, at, within, the, within the tabernacle. He's saying, kill, kill the fields and, and, and let the grain offerings be found in another place because this, this is a, a horrible, tragic event. Our king has died and the land that sucked up his blood should be punished for having done so. Letter C, we see David's care for Saul and Jonathan. This was not being done as some kind of hokey uh, uh, attempt to unify the country. David legitimately mourned the death of Saul and Jonathan. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 1. Look at verse number 22. For the blood of the slain. You can almost hear the grief in David's voice as we read these verses. For, from the blood of the slain, for from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and present, uh, pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. David goes on and praises Saul and Jonathan for their loyalty to each other. Even in all that had happened, even in the evil spirit that had plagued Saul, Saul and Jonathan stayed together to the very end. It is of significance, uh, great significance that Saul knew, uh, based on his encounter with Samuel at the house uh, of uh, the witch of Endor, Saul knew he was going to die in battle. He knew. And Saul is painted by many as a coward. I believe even in 1 Samuel he's sort of painted as a coward. But we have to give credit where it's due. Saul and Jonathan knew they would die in battle. Saul did not run from battle. He ran to the battle. He knew by suiting up his armor and going into war that day that he was going to die. And he went anyway. And he fought valiantly all the way to the death. Look at first, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 25. Look at verse 25. David continues lamenting over Saul. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? O Jonathan, thou wast slain in thy high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. Here are the mighty How are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? David and Jonathan had vowed a vow that when David was one day king, that Jonathan would be his right-hand man. They had made this vow over and over and over again. God had knit their hearts together. They shared a camaraderie that few people ever, ever know. Few people can genuinely mourn when their enemy dies. It takes a high level of integrity to see the good in someone who isn't very nice to you. Once Abraham Lincoln was asked by a news reporter what he thought about his political opponent. This opponent had drugged Lincoln's name through the mud and had severely tarnished his reputation. Lincoln thought for a moment, and after giving great deliberation to his next words, he began to share some insight on positive things he had noticed about his political enemy. The reporter was perplexed and interrupted Mr. Lincoln. And interjected, but Mr. Lincoln, don't you know what this man has said about you? Don't you know how this man has treated you? And Lincoln replied, you did not ask me what he thought of me. You asked me what I thought of him. 
Is it any wonder Lincoln was such a tremendous president in this country? He had enough integrity to see past someone who was being nasty his direction and see the good in that person anyway. It is this same integrity that caused David to mourn over the death of a man who genuinely hated his guts. Vindication. Lamentation. Number three, notice, coronation. Coronation. Letter A, we see David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. Look at Second Samuel chapter 2 and look at verse number 1. The Bible says, And it came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, Go up. And David said, Whither shall I go up? And he said, Unto Hebron. Uh, so David went up hither, and his two wives, also Ahinoam, uh, the, the Jezreelite, and Abigail, Nabal's wife, the Carmelite. David is God's anointed man, and awkwardly enough, he's living in Philistia, the land that just killed the king. He's living there in the country, and he can no longer stay there because he's anointed to be the next king. But David did not make some knee-jerk decision. David did not rush into anything. What did David do? David prayed. David prayed. He inquired of the Lord. Why don't doubt this church? This might be the simplest thing I say in my message all night. The simplest thing I might say, but it's a solid reminder. No matter how big or small the decisions in your life are, you need to inquire of the Lord on all of them. All of them. All of them. Right? Do I buy a car? Do I get a new car or used car? Do I buy a home? Uh, uh, do we re refinance our home? Uh, do I switch doctors? If so, uh, which doctor do I switch to? Uh, uh, which way do I take to work? What do I wear? What do I listen to? Uh, what church do I attend? How often do I attend? Uh, uh, what music uh, do I listen to? Uh, where do I go? Who are my friends? Uh, uh, what ministries am I involved in at church? Uh, what extracurricular activities are we involved in as a family? Uh, uh, what do I let my children watch on TV? Uh, what do we watch as a family on TV? Uh, what forms of entertainment do we enjoy? Where do we go on vacation? Who do we go on vacation with? How often do we go on vacation? Uh, uh, when we, where do we go to church while we're on vacation? All of these decisions you should take before God in prayer. Inquire of the Lord in prayer. David had made the mistake of running here and running there and doing this and doing that. And people had died based on his poor decision making. He learned to either turn to the prophet Gad and have Gad help him or uh, to turn to, uh, let's see here, uh, Ahinoam, uh, not Ahinoam, uh, the priest's son, uh, Abiathar, I believe is his name, right? Abiathar and have have him help him uh, through these times. David learned to go directly to the throne of heaven before he made the next move. And God made it very clear to David, you are to move back to your home province of Judah. You are to move into Hebron. Hebron is 25 miles from Ziklag, still right in the shadow of Philistia, but inside of Judah, David inquired of the Lord. Do you pray? Do you pray? One of the marks of being a man or woman of Christian integrity is that you pray and you pray regularly. Christian, it would be very wise for you to turn off talk radio in your car and pray. It would be very wise for you to turn off Fox News or CNN or MSNBC and get on your knees and pray. Pray. 
It'd be wise for you to push out the noise of the drama you have going on within your family and get on your knees and pray and pray. I'm not saying that it's wrong to engage with your family or to engage with the news, but put those things in its proper place and spend time on your knees in prayer and let God be the number one influence in the decisions that you make. Letter B, we see David established king of Judah. David established king of Judah. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. The Bible says, And his men that were with him did David bring up every man with his household. And they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Now this is climatic right here. This is... Listen, David, when they move into these homes in the regions of Hebron, this is the first time in over ten years... They've been able to live without having to constantly look over their shoulder and worry about being killed. For the last ten years, they've been chased all over the countryside, or they've been living in Philistia to get away from danger. Now they're finally able to live in a brick-and-mortar home in their own country without fear of death. And David is, uh, has the crown put on his head. No, not of the entire country. That would come in time, in time but he's made king over Judah, king over Judah, David's integrity caused him to wait patiently. He had been anointed to be Israel's king decades prior as a teenager. He had waited all this time for this to come to pass. Listen tonight, somebody needs to hear what I'm about to say. He did not rush in to be uh, to, to being Israel's king all at once. There were many in Israel who were still loyal to King Saul and his family. He would have to accept the province of Judah uh, for the time being and wait on God to bring about the rest of the kingdom. Many, many, many times people press. They want God's future will for their lives now. They want, God's future, uh, uh, they want God's future will for their lives now. Teenagers do this with dating. I don't want to meddle too much here, but teenagers shouldn't date. Where's that in the Bible? Well, I don't know that it's written in the Bible, but dating's not anywhere in the Bible. All right? The idea of dating is not anywhere in the Bible. I'm not against dating. Uh, in some Christian circles, they throw the word dating out and insert the word courting, and uh, traditionally, the idea of courting, I think, is probably a little more biblical where it can be followed. But why would you get in a car when you can't arrive at the destination? Right? You're either going to get hurt or you're going to do something really, really stupid. But when teenagers jump in and date, what are we doing? What are we doing? We're setting ourselves up where we want God's future will now when it's not time. Young married couples do this with material goods. I want everything mom and dad own after 30 years of marriage, but I want it now. And they end up buying things on credit they shouldn't be buying. It very well may be that God wants you to have nice things. Wait on His timing. Middle-aged people do this with retirement. I'm going to take an early retirement, and then you turn around and you're 80 years old and you can't pay your bills because you couldn't wait on God's timing. Career-minded people do this with forcing their way up the ladder of corporate success, doing so through means that are not integritous, doing so through means that are backhanded and sly and wrong, and, and you're cheating your way up the ladder. You're lying and you're crooked in those methods because you don't want to wait on God's timing. Even those called to ministry force their way into a pastorate or ministry position before it is God's time. 
I wish I had more time to, uh, uh, to lay this out and make this case, but I'll make the statement, and you can mentally chew on this later. Most sins are committed because we do not wait on God's timing. Most sins are committed because we do not wait on God's timing. God will establish you as a married man or woman in His time, not yours. God will uh, give you material goods in His time if He so chooses. God will bring you to the point of retirement in His time, not yours. God will advance you in your career in His time. God will promote you to a position of spiritual leadership in His time. Do not press. Do not force the issue. Do not rush into things. David had a time of refinement. David did not try to force his way out of God's refinement. He lived under the refining fire of God and waited for God to turn down the flame and God to say, okay, David, you're ready to be king. Now I'm going to uh, uh, give you the crown. Now I'm going to establish you king of Hebron over Judah It's still not time for Israel, but I'm going to let you be here for the next seven and a half years. Trust the timing of God. His way is best. This requires great integrity. Great integrity. Because we want to force the issue. Wait on God's timing. Vindication, lamentation, coronation, four. And lastly, notice the word appreciation. Appreciation. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 2. Back at verse number 4, the Bible says, And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Look here. And they told David, saying, that the men of Jabesh-Gilead were they that buried Saul. Now we have an issue. Before we continue reading, we have an issue. Judah, because David's from Judah, they are loyal to David. All right? People from Jabesh-Gilead, Saul was a Benjaminite. They're loyal to Saul. Now that we have a divided country, we have a fractured country. And uh, David is going to need to find a way to bring the country together. Look at verse 5. And David sent messengers unto the men of Jabesh Gilead and said unto them, Blessed be ye of the Lord, that ye have showed this kindness unto your Lord, even unto Saul, and have buried him. And now the Lord show kindness and truth unto you, and I also will requite you this kindness. Um, because ye have done this thing. Therefore now, let your hands be strengthened, and be ye valiant. For your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah have anointed me king over them. David did not uh, try to, uh, through some coup, or through some uh, military activities, overthrow uh, those loyal to Saul. He gave them space and grace. He gave them space to work through things. He gave them grace to figure things out. We're going to see a civil war that breaks out in the rest of Second Samuel chapter 2 next week. I encourage you to read ahead. But this was not caused by David. This was caused by Agner, Saul's uh, uh, relative, who wanted to promote Saul's other son onto the throne. And, and, and there ended up being a civil war in the country, much to the dismay of David. David instead shows appreciation. What was David showing appreciation for? You see, they had taken the body of Saul... They had decapitated him. They had taken his remains and they had hung up his remains in their temples 
in Philistia to celebrate the fact that they had conquered the great Saul. And some very brave men uh, from Jabesh Gilead, they broke into the temple. They recovered the bodies of Saul. Uh, they scraped away all of the, uh, the ugliness of what had been done. They, they gave Saul a proper burial, risking their own lives to do so. And David extends an olive branch and says, thank you for doing that. Thank you for doing that. You know, again, what this required? It required great emotional quotient. It required integrity. It required integrity. David did not cause deeper division over the way Saul had treated him. David loved Saul, and David healed the nation with the spirit of great integrity. I begin the message this evening where I began it. You cannot lead anyone, including yourself, unless you are a man or woman of great integrity. Only you and God know how integritous you are. A man or woman who leads that lacks integrity is going to end up hurting people in the process. Be a man or woman of integrity. And where you come up short, get on your knees and ask God to help you to become the man or woman that God so desires for you to be. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this evening. God elevated David to this position because he saw in him at a young age, a man, young man who had a heart for God, a man who is willing to be integritous. Did David stay integritous? No, we're going to see David's sin in the weeks to come. But David was elevated to that position because he made decisions that were right, not decisions that were convenient. He made decisions that were right, not decisions that brought instantaneous ratification. Are you a man or a woman who does right even when it is inconvenient to do so? Lord, I pray tonight you would show us deep down in our heart where we come up short. Maybe we're impatient and we try to force things out of you before the right time. Lord, maybe we uh, rejoice over an enemy that falls. Lord, whatever it is, however you have spoken to hearts this evening, help us, Lord, as we're brought to this time of decision to make decisions that honor you. Lord, help us to love you and love our neighbor as ourselves, just as we've been commanded in Scripture. Give us men, or, men and women in this church who live their lives by a deep sense of character and biblical integrity. In Jesus' name, let's stand to our feet.